0: We are examining Holy Week. In fact, this is the uh, second of five episodes in which we'll be taking a good biblical look at Holy Week. There's going to be a lot of activity this week. There's going to be a lot of activity in in Rome. There's going to be a lot of activity throughout Europe. There's going to be a lot of activity in the local churches. Um, And there's going to be some of it that's good, some of it that's downright abomination. Uh, Most of it, in fact, is going to be abomination. (laughs) It's going to be uh, celebrated and observed by Christendom. Uh, most of which has been hardened into a system that actually opposes Christ. And indeed, just as that system in Jerusalem, which was designed to be the foreshadow of the one who was to come, the temple worship, the sacrificial system, the Levitical priesthood, the hierarchy of the high priest, and so on, That was all designed to be a shadow, uh, a foreshadow of him who was to come. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, he should have been greeted by that system as the fulfillment of that system. That system should have bowed its knee to the one who embodied the fulfillment of ...of that old covenant system, and therefore it was time to put it away and worship the one who is God in the flesh, who is the new temple, who is the new Sabbath rest for his people, who is and about to become the only true sacrifice that can save his people from their sins, instead... What he met with, as you learned in the first episode, was a structure that had become so apostate, so satanically energized, so hardened into its own self-preservation, and existed only for its own interests, that it sought instead to destroy him, even on Palm Sunday. And so there was never a time that there was a reception given to Jesus that was appropriate. Now, of course, when he came into Jerusalem, people were shouting, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord!' Blessed is the coming King of our Father David, Hosanna in the highest. And there was there was a God ordained, God orchestrated response that was appropriate to receiving uh, Israel receiving their King. But was short lived. It was short lived. It, it was a fruitless structure. It was an apostate structure, as we'll discover. And so what I'm saying to you this week is that Holy Week is a time of deliverance preceded by judgment. It's a time when we who are in Christ recall and remember and meditate and celebrate upon the fact that our Lord offered himself on our behalf. He offered himself to save us from the holy and just wrath of God to the one true Lamb of God, sacrificed on our behalf at Passover. And then celebrate the fact that His resurrection represents the beginning of a new creation of which we are now a part. And that His resurrection on that first resurrection morning represents the guarantee that those who are in Christ, too, will be resurrected, for we are in the resurrected one. Your resurrection on that final day is as certain as the fact of Christ's own bodily resurrection on that first Easter morning. This is why when a liberal professor stands up, as it did, as it happened for me when I was in seminary, uh, stood up and said, you know, you really don't have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus to be a Christian. I mean, <laughs> thankfully, there were enough genuine Christians in the classroom that they, uh, we had to counter his argument. We had to stand appalled at that kind of a statement. I mean, if Satan himself could have walked in in professor's robes and kind of opened his mouth and spoke, and he couldn't have said it clearer than that one professor did. Oh, you don't have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus to be a Christian. (laughs) I mean, if it wasn't so horrific in its implications, it would be laughable. But this is the kind of thing that we're talking about in Holy Week. We're talking about universities, seminaries, denominations, Whole denominations, whole systems of religion that call itself Christianity, that are no more Christianity than was first century Judaism at the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We're talking about systems today that have been hardened for their own self-preservation to propagate their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They're there to provide a platform for charlatans, for professional clergy, for those who want to offer you a sacramental system from cradle to grave. They're not there to allow you to grow and to mature in the image of Christ they're not, they're not there to provide you with pastoral care that helps you, uh, equips you for the work of the ministry and helps you mature into a, a full, functional adult in Jesus Christ, a spiritual, emotional, mental adult. They're there to use you to support their system, to fleece you. And they stand opposed, therefore, to the interests of Christ. They stand opposed to the very thing that they say they are celebrating this week. It's a deception like that boggles the mind when you consider it. But listen, it doesn't boggle the mind of the Lord Jesus. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, I told you in the first episode, as king, with all the authority in heaven and on earth. And he came not only to provide the ultimate, permanent, unique, final sacrifice to deliver his own from their sins, to be the new exodus, but he came to expose, to denounce, and to judge that system that indeed was a fruitless system. It had all the activity. It had all the appearances. But it was fruitless. It it was not serving its purpose. It wasn't providing care, pastoral care, for the people that were involved with it. It wasn't providing care for the stranger, the widow, the orphan. It wasn't providing sound teaching. It was providing a platform for thieves. In fact, Jesus, you'll hear in the next episode, refers to the temple system and the temple itself as a robber's den, a robber's cave where people go out and rob and steal and then rush back to their cave and pile up their their booty, pile up their goods that they've stolen becomes a warehouse for stolen goods. Stolen from who? Stolen from the people of Israel. Stolen from the people of God at that time. Sheep were to be sheared, not cared for. In other words, it's very much like the system today. Whether it's apostate Christianity of today or apostate Judaism of the first century, The Lord Jesus deals with it the same way. And what I share with you in the first episode is that we need to be clear that we're not on the wrong side of this situation. We need to be clear that we're not part of some hardened system that uses Christian terminology, using Christian symbols, professing to belong to Christ, but is in fact fruitless and worthy only of cursing because that's what Jesus has come to do in Jerusalem in the first century and that's what he does still today. A.W. Tozer once said, if the Holy Spirit left most churches, they wouldn't notice. Nothing would change. Isn't that astonishing? I, I, that's a, it's a very astute observation. And I think there's a lot of systems of religion today that call itself Christianity that are so fruitless, so worthless, that, that, the, that the fact that Jesus opposes them, they are oblivious to it. The fact that Jesus isn't even present in their system, they are oblivious. Well, let's turn to our text now in this second of five episodes discussing Holy Week out of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 11 through 14 today just to make sure we maintain our context. He says, and Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. And on the next day when they had left bethany he became hungry and seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves he went in to see he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it and when he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs and he answered and said to it may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples were listening End quote. So Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and he's come to the temple. The Lord has come to His temple. The Lord has come to His temple." That's um, something we should consider out of Malachi. It says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will prepare the, the way before me. This is Malachi chapter 3. So he's speaking of John the Baptist there, the prophecy about John the Baptist, the forerunner. And then in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Now listen to verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a smelter's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh, as in the ancient days, as in the former years. The Lord has come to his temple. They say they want him. Good Jews in the first century were waiting for the Lord's presence to return. You might recall that Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter ten, the glory of the Lord left the temple. God removed his presence from Jerusalem just prior to Babylon coming in and sacking the temple, sacking Jerusalem. And ever since that time, during and after the exile and the rebuilding of the temple, which never, never was restored to its former glory, they were awaiting for the, the, the return of God's presence in the temple. And so the prophet Malachi is saying the day's coming when the Lord will return to his temple. But he's coming as one who purifies it, and not gently, not superficially, but like a smelter's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, meaning he will purify the priesthood, so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. The offering is coming on Good Friday. The offering, the supreme offering is coming. The Lord has come to his temple in our text. This is five days before, five days or four days actually before Good Friday. And Jesus has entered Jerusalem, came into the temple. After looking around at everything, he he was inspecting the temple. And he had the authority to do so. And then he left for Bethany, which was nearby with the twelve, since it was already late. Now, the next day, our Lord rises early, other Gospels tell us, probably 6 a.m. When they left Bethany, he became hungry. which is another testimony to the truth of his humanity. The ancient heresy of docetism said that he was just uh, appeared to be a man. He just seemed to be a man. So we get this wonderful little side note here that he was hungry. Real human beings get hungry. And our Lord became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree that had leaves he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now, the fig tree in the prophets is a symbol of Israel. in Hosea 9.10 and Nahum 3.12 and Zechariah 3.10. It's a symbol, an image of Israel and its temple system. So you get the background here now, right? You see what's about to happen here. And so he saw this fig tree that had leaves. Now the fruit typically grew with leaves. And the fact that leaves had already grown would have been an indication that there was fruit, even though it was about a a month premature. It would usually be fruitful in June. But there were leaves on this particular fig tree already. And so it gave the appearance, all the appearances of having fruit that would nourish a human body, that would nourish a human being. So Jesus went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but fruit. Leaves. For it was not the season for figs, but it wasn't the season for leaves either. Something was wrong here. It was a strange situation. It was strange that there was a fig tree bearing leaves without the fruit. It was strange because it was early. It would have made sense if there had been no leaves and no fruit. But because there were leaves, it looked like it was a premature bearing of fruit. You can have no fruit, no leaves, but if you have leaves, you should have fruit. Okay, and he answered again and said to it, it, the fig tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Now let's pause here and consider what we just heard. The fig tree is, in the prophets, representative, symbolic of Israel. Jesus had the previous day, came late in the day, and had gone and inspected his father's temple. He had the authority to do that. The Lord had come to his temple. And he inspected it closely. What did he find? Throughout the whole temple system. What did he find in the whole temple system that was happening? Well, we've already discovered, and we will discover, that it had become a den of thieves. A place of exploitation, a place of extortion, a place of profit. It had become a merchandise center. It had become a place where you brought your tithes, even though those tithes were lining the pockets of the clerical hierarchy. It wasn't serving to help the stranger, the widow, the orphan. In fact, quite on the contrary. The way the system was set up, the scribes were acting like financial advisors to widows, having widows actually uh, turn over their finances to the scribes, who very piously promised to manage them properly for them and to take care of them And as we'll find later on in in Mark and in Luke, there was one widow who was down to nothing, next to nothing, but who was still so devoted to a system that had seduced her, exploited her widowhood, robbed her, devoured her house, devoured her resources, that she was down to two little coins, two little mites. Instead of being outraged on her part that she had been so exploited, she actually went back to the system and put those two coins in, giving all that she had. And that wasn't an example of Christian giving. Luke doesn't tell that story, nor does Mark, so that we can have a model of Christian giving. <laughs> There's nothing about Christian giving that tells us to sell everything we have and give it to the church. There's nothing about Christian giving that implies that we should turn all of our finances and all of our material goods over to the pastoral staff and let them manage it for us and um, steal it from us. That's the kind of thing that was happening. And Jesus took note. Now remember, this system had all the appearances of being fruitful. From the outside, from a reasonable distance, it looked like a very happening place. It looked like there was lots of activity, it was a busy place. You could hear the bleeding of cattle and oxen. and You could hear the money being changed. You could hear people talking. You could hear the murmur of conversations happening around you. It had all the appearances of life. But it was fruitless. It, was, it did not exist for the glory of God. It did not exist for the care of God's people. It existed for itself. It was a deception. It was a religious structure and a religious system that existed for its own self-interest, the self-interest of the clergy, for the high priest and his family, who became wealthy by setting up the whole money-changing thing. They exploited people. They stole from people. They devoured widows' houses. They lined their pockets. All the while telling people that, you know, this is Korban. You dedicate it, you give it to God. Does that sound anything like you would hear on Christian television today? Of course it does. Same exact mentality. All the appearances. All the appearances. In fact, Paul tells us in Timothy that the church of the last days. Do you have any, I, any question or any doubt that this, that we are in the last of the last days? I'm not a uh, eschatological um, fanatic. I, <laughs> I've always risked, resisted, even talking like that, because there are so many. Well. I don't want to be unkind. There are so many people who just are really hysterical about eschatology. and So the use word, the last days, gets people worked up sometimes. But remember what Paul said the church of the last days would look like. He said, but know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And he goes on to describe the character of the average church. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. In other words, much like the people who lived in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus wrote in triumphantly. Unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good. In other words, utterly devoid of the fruit of the Spirit. You hear that? utterly devoid of the fruit of the Spirit. The church in the last days, what looks like the church, what sounds like the church, what uses Christian symbols, it has all the activity, all the appearances. Folks, it's just leaves. There's no fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is utterly absent in most of these structures. Now, is it utterly absent? No, not at all. Even during the time of Elijah, when Elijah was complaining that he was all alone, God encouraged him, saying, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's always a remnant. God has his people. What I'm trying to spare you from, and what I'm trying to help you see pastorally here, is is there are systems that exist that look like Christianity, they sound like Christianity, they give all the appearances of Christianity. In fact, Paul says it in this way in 2 Timothy 3 5 holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power, keep away from such men as these. That's what this is about. Keep away from such people as these. They have a form of religion but it's fruitless. You scratch the surface and you see as much depravity and character, depravity and behavior as you would find in any cheap bar on a Saturday night. Except it has a veneer of piety. And I'm saying to you today that Jesus today is saying to those systems, the same thing he said to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Listen, the most severe judgment of God, the hottest severe judgment of God is reserved for false religion. Not for the prostitutes. Not for the tax collectors. Not for the penitent sinner. Not for the backslider. Not for the wandering child who's wandering away from the faith. No, 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 no. Those are all recoverable. The wrath of God is the hottest towards false religion. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Listen, if you're part of a fruitless system, Christ has cursed it. You can say, well, did he curse it because it was fruitless, or was it fruitless because he cursed it? I don't know. All I know is it's fruitless, and Christ curses fruitless things. If you're part of a religious system, a part of a denomination, or part of an independent church that is utterly fruitless, and you know it is, how do you know it is? Well, is there any emphasis on discipleship? Is there any emphasis on caring for the weak? Is there any emphasis in caring for the poor or the widow or the stranger or the orphan? Is there any emphasis on actually preaching the word of God? Is there any emphasis on equipping you for this work of the ministry? Calling you to be active in the work of the ministry? Serving one another in love? Bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Sharing with each other the gift of the Spirit? And um, growing up Is it a church that encourages individuals in the church to grow up, to be mature spiritually, mentally, emotionally? Or is it just a church that you go and watch and treat like a spectator every week? And the only thing they ask of you is to, quote, pray and be careful to pay. It's fruitless. What we're hearing today, beloved, is that Christ curses fruitless religion. Christ cursed the system in Jerusalem. And we'll see that in the next episode. When he actually returns to Jerusalem, returns to the temple, and he doesn't cleanse the temple as is so commonly thought. He prepares it for judgment, is what he does. He prepares it for judgment. And that judgment arrived in April, excuse me, in 70 A.D. When the Roman general Titus came in and sacked Jerusalem, and there was not one stone left upon the other. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10. So Holy Week is about deliverance for God's people. If you are on Christ, you have every right, every privilege to rejoice and celebrate the your redemption that was so thoroughly and completely and finally purchased for you at the cross, the offering, the only offering that God wholly accepted as permanent and final by raising Christ from the dead and at his ascension, seating him at his right hand, showing that he is a high priest whose work is finished as far as atonement, but whoever lives still to make intercession for you who sent the Spirit, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to dwell in you, to seal you for redemption so that you can rejoice in your accomplished salvation. Which is, it's accomplished and while you live in hope of it being fully realized when he returns, you are nonetheless sealed and you nonetheless have a certain hope As Christians, we don't hope as if we fear hope against hope. It is hope that is a certain hope. Because as Jesus sits glorified before the Father in his humanity, so we too will join him one day, perfected, new bodies, new heaven, new earth, perfected in his glory, glorified. But if you're part of a fruitless system, there's nothing for you, except cursing. Get out. Get out. If you think, let me just say this as I close. If you think for a moment that God is indifferent to fruitless religious systems that use Christian symbols, that use Christian terminologies, that may have good credential clergy, or not, but they look good, sound like good, appear to be good, but they're fruitless. If you think God is indifferent to that, then I invite you to read this text again and again and again. Mark 11, 12 through 14, and you'll and pray that the Spirit will make it real to you how God really feels about fruitless religious systems. Well, we'll leave it there. In the next episode, we'll continue our journey with Jesus into Holy Week as he attends the temple one more time and how he judges that system and the opposition from the chief priests and the scribes arises up against him and the battle lines are drawn. May the Lord keep you in his grace in his mercy, and may the Spirit illuminate your minds to his inspired word. Amen.